0: In the summer of 1532, Luther gave a series of lectures on Psalm 51. The psalm written by David about repentance after his affair with Bathsheba
1: and his murder of Uriah was made public. Six years later, in 1538, Luther's followers released a small book on Psalm 51 based on Luther's lectures. Luther was never able to find the
0: time to review and approve the book, and there's General agreement that it mostly reflects what was taught, and it gives us a good view into Luther's teaching style on
1: repentance, justification, and sanctification. I'm Evan Gertner. And I'm Mike Yeagley, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to the history and the theology of the Lutheran Reformation all over a nice cold beer. Good to get that that clink again. That
0: clink sound is nice. You can't do that over Zoom. <laughs> and uh, you have uh, the beer for today that we'll review later on
1: from Sheboygan Brewing Company. You know? Yeah, yeah. I, I have to say, and we'll talk about this later, but I have to say, I have never, I've never, I don't think I've ever given a bad review to a beer, but I was expecting to give a bad review to this beer because it's a blueberry <laughs> cream ale. ale.
0: Uh, but opening it, it smells it reminds me smells are always amazing yeah. it immediately reminds me of going blueberry hunting with my grandmother and her pail under the high wire along the gravel road near our cabin in northern Minnesota.
1: I, I, that smell really when I opened it up it just filled the room this blueberry smell and I I haven't taken my first sip yet but we'll uh, it'll be I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about with that one well let's let's get started on this um, so you know first of all, Luther really did have a remarkable relationship with the Psalms. He, he read through like 15 Psalms a day, starting in his teenage years and going to the end of his life. So he went through all 150 Psalms every 10 days for his whole life, essentially.
0: It would have been the character of the monastery that I was in that lunchtime, there would not have been talking to the monks, one another by their table, but there would have been a reader that would have been just reading through the psalms and that's how he would have gotten through the psalms like that and then after he is no longer living in a monastery and he's married to Katie and they've got children he continues that daily pattern of reading the psalms
1: he would he would just you know, he would just he had them memorized to and he would see linkages between them so so as he's going through psalm 51 there's a lot here there's a lot just in the psalm
0: that he is looking at, but he's always cross-connecting it to everything else that he's thinking about, both in the political world he's in, the religious world that he grew up in, and even within the context of scripture itself.
1: Now, I think one of the first times, uh, the first, and in, in, if you go to Luther's works, the American edition, I think one of the oldest documents in there was when he commented on the psalm's even before fifteen seventeen. I think it was in like fifteen sixteen or something in that time frame. Just notes from his classes. He was an old testament
0: professor. That was his primary subject matter. And and we'll see as we're gonna get into Psalm 51. He didn't write a specific sit down at the desk and write a commentary in Psalm 51, but rather this is his classroom lecture. That he would have taken over a couple months to go through Psalm 51.
1: So this is the one, if you if you have Luther's works or you're looking up on the internet, it'd be found in Luther's works, volume 12, which there's like, within Luther's works, there's several versions of his commentary on on, uh, on Psalm 51. This one is in volume 12. So
0: also in volume 12, you'd find... Commentary in Psalms 2, 8, 19, 23, 26, 45, and then 51. And some of these are going to be lectures, and some of these are sermons, um, but they're all his words. Uh, but to say they're his words is, is not quite the way it works, because as I said, Luther didn't sit down to write this commentary. He's lecturing, and George Rohr took notes during Luther's classes. He's trying to capture exactly what Luther said. He's got his own little... Um, shorthand that he uses, and some of what George writes down uh, from watching sermons or listening to the lectures, uh, he never publishes, and after he dies in 1557, someone else takes his notes and tries to figure out his... After George Rohrer dies. After George Rohrer dies, someone else tries to figure out his notes. Uh, this particular uh, commentary in Psalm 51, Veit Dietrich took Rohrer's notes, um, not after Rohr died, but in his own lifetime and published the notes in 1538. Now, Veit Dietrich was an interesting person to not translate, but uh, publish Luther, because Luther in his own lectures would sometimes make a historical reference to something that was going on in their day that year in Wittenberg or someone else. But then when he would publish it, maybe six, seven years later, people have found out that Veit Dietrich would change the historical uh, reference that Luther has to make it contemporary to 1538 instead of 1532. Right, right. And so commentators who look back at Luther's notes are always trying to figure out what is Luther, what is George, and what is Veit Dietrich? And often when they do that sense of uh, Venn diagram among these three men, they find there's a lot of accuracy. Veit Dietrich, for the most part, did not introduce
1: his own opinions. Right. Well, The funny thing is, uh, George Rohrer, going back to George Rohrer, Um, when Luther first started preaching, George Rohrer started getting into, when this whole Reformation thing really started taking off, George Rohrer got into the habit of taking what Luther said word for word as best he could and then running off and having it published. And Luther said, that's fine, whatever. You know, I'm glad that somebody's doing this work. Well, at some point, Luther was giving a sermon and Rohrer is out in the crowd, jotting it down as best he could, he published it. And Luther got mad at him because Luther was sort of being... He, he said, it's a spoken word. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm reading the audience. I'm, I'm, I'm meeting, reading the crowd. They have a specific issues. I'm trying to sort of... So there of, can be some hyperbole. There's it's hyperbole. Some exaggeration. I went a
0: little bit overboard here. Which would be clear through his body expression. Yeah. Maybe, but it doesn't come across in And
1: the he protein. got mad at Roar, and, and so from that point on, Roar continued to try to write down exactly what Luther said. But Roar was less likely to go and publish it directly. And so this is where Veit Dietrich starts, other people start taking Rohrer's notes and, and doing
0: their work. So yeah. Veit Dietrich publishes this commentary in Psalm 51 in 1538. Philip Melanchthon writes the preface for this little booklet in 1538. Uh, but then later after it's published, he, we have um, letters that show this, that he complained to Dietrich about how Luther's words are described in relationship to verse 3 of Psalm 51. And uh, we don't know what Melanchthon's complaint was. We just know that there was something in Veit Dietrich's writings of, around verse 3 that Melanchthon was concerned that because he had written the preface for this little book, that Luther would blame him. ...for what is being said in verse 3 rather than Veit Dietrich. He wants to make sure Veit Dietrich is clearly the recognized as the guy who made the mistake.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, the, the, the way the dynamic between these guys works... ...because once, once Luther stops writing directly, he doesn't have time to put stuff out. And he's got all sorts of responsibilities now. And so you have other people picking up the slack... And, and the, the dynamic that comes out of that where there's like, well, you, you, especially a bunch of theologians talking where, oh, you use this word instead of that word and little tiny things that probably get past your normal folk. You know, they're just, you know, at each other's throat over. And, and it's it, rightly so, you know, because based on what we learn as the Reformation continues, these are big issues that are sort of percolating underneath the surface. And, and so it's it, it's sort of interesting to watch how this is all playing out. I actually, in going through all this, and I didn't put it into my notes, um, I was like, well, what exactly was going on between Veit Dietrich and Melanchthon and Luther? And at least modern scholars are saying things like, you know, Melanchthon was already sort of getting soft on compromising, compromising, trying to massage words. Fifteen
0: thirty-eight. What's going on in Luther's time? Why is he so busy that he can't review this book and Philip Melanchthon is a part of writing the preface instead? Well, what happens is the end of fifteen thirty-seven. He's in Small called. He's writing the Small called articles. He has terrible kidney pain. He ends up leaving the um, the Small called League meeting. Philip Melanchthon finishes that meeting. And in 1538, uh, Phil Melanchthon writes the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope. And And Luther's kidney pain, his kidney stones are such that he thinks he's going to die. So 1537, 1538, uh, Luther's not quite busy with being a super responsible guy only, but he's also sick. He's sick. He's very sick. So that's kind of the introduction to like, how do we know what Luther said about Psalm 51? Uh, 1532, he has a two-month lecture in his uh, time in Wittenberg University. And as he's beginning Psalm 51, he's got some introductory comments. And he says, this is a great study for these five things, to understand repentance, to understand sin,
1: to understand grace, justification, and proper worship. So Luther begins his introduction was one of his favorite things to do, right? Attacking the Roman Catholic Church. This is a hobby. This is yeah. this goes this goes beyond a hobby. This and is this is what he does. Almost every page.
0: There's some <laughs> critique of the Scholastics, uh, the papacy,
1: um, either either the Radical Reformation or the or the Roman Catholic Church, but. His favorite is the Roman Catholic Church. So if
0: you read the commentary, you're going to see something about the Scholastics. Whenever he's mentioning the Scholastics, that's the medieval Roman Catholic Church. That's the height of error for him as you look at the history of the church.
1: So one of the things he says is, These people think God is satisfied if they pretend to be sorry by dressing differently, walking differently, and eating differently. And basically he's getting into... The ideas of the medieval ideas, Roman Catholic ideas on repentance, that if you if you if you want to repent and I'm doing air quotes here, if you want to repent, then you have to wear a hair shirt or something like this. Become a monk, take the call,
0: uh, wear the tonsure where you shave your head, whatever it is, make a big show of it, because that's how you'll know it's true. If it's fancy.
1: Right, right. And so then Luther spends some time outlining the proper doctrine of repentance. Recognition of sin. That's the fear of God. Acknowledging
0: that I am not God. I don't get to tell God what I'm going to do and why I'm right. To acknowledge my sin is to acknowledge my position.
1: One of the things um, when it comes to f- this concept of fear of God, and it talks about it a lot in the Bible, and especially when I was a young Christian, you know, that's a concept I always struggled with. I think he, he, Luther describes
0: that struggle as well. As he talks about the temptations of contrition. Uh, when you are looking at your own sins and you're struggling with understanding your sins, there is a temptation to minimize your sin. And then there's a, a temptation to essentially put God in the box of angry forever. Right. And right. Uh, so he's going to say recognition of sin, which he calls fear of God. And the other side of the doctrine of repentance is, is recognition of grace, which Luther calls a trust and mercy. And then he's going to point out that the entire psalm is bookended by these. Uh, as you read Psalm 51 you're going to see a recognition of
1: sin, and then you're going to see the psalm finish with a recognition of grace. So, after Luther sort of spends a little bit of time, and he begins by this overview, you know, the, the, the five big things you're going to be looking for, which is repentance, sin, grace, justification, and proper worship. He starts with that, and then he hones in on those two, which is recognition of sin, recognition of grace— then he begins to focus on how the psalm uh, refutes the medieval view of sin, which breaks things up into mortal and venial sin. And actually, this is still in the modern Catholic Church. I, I still follow, you know, Catholic theologians, and I'll, they'll bring this up every so often, which is like, I, I, I have a little heartburn with it. But you know. yeah, big sin versus small sin. What's dangerous?
0: What isn't? Um, talking about sin and being. Uh, uh, a venial sin sounds like you're only kind of pregnant. Either, either you're pregnant or you're not. <laughs> yeah. uh, either you are a sinner or you are not. And when you start to look at sins through the description of mortal and venial, it's all exterior working. Yeah, and that's the big struggle for Luther. Is Luther's going to spend quite a bit of time in this introduction explaining original sin?
1: So let's let's talk about what mortal sin and venial sin are because i know every time i talk to a lutheran about mortal and venial sin they're like what it's like what What? What? that doesn't make any sense (laughs) so what's a mortal sin mike so i had to actually do some looking this up to find out i wanted to to be right i wanted i I want to be fair to our catholic friends and i was looking for something that would actually uh Accurately describe what a what the modern Catholic Church says is a mortal sin. It says a grave sin with full recognition of the sinner that will result in damnation if not repented of before death. And this is why it's called mortal because it brings to death for
0: eternity a person if they um, if they do not repent of this sin. It is it is a mortal sin. It causes death. Right and damnation. All right. So then contrast that. A venial sin. Mortal is a word that probably makes sense to people. Immortal versus mortal. But venial is a word that, I yeah, don't know. It, See, I
1: think of like uh, deer meat or something like yeah, that. <laughs> <laughs> that is it. Yeah. Not, not an everyday word. I think the only time I've ever heard the word venial mentioned is in Catholic uh, Catholic circles talking about sin. So, according to the Catholic Catechism, a venial sin is when in a less serious manner... The sinner does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when that sinner disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or without complete consent. So this is the you sinned, but you didn't know it was a sin or
0: you sinned, but uh, you were fighting against the sin. Right. Or
1: it was a minor sin. You know, it's something like, you know, it wasn't like stealing. It wasn't like murder. It wasn't like... I'm not like Hitler. I'm not that bad. Right, right. It's like, uh, well, okay, yeah, that's a sin, but that's a a venial sin.
0: So then Luther's going to outline the story of David and Uriah the Hittite and shows how one small sin is going to lead to many great sins. And he's going to spend uh, many sentences in this commentary talking about David's description of sin in this psalm is not specific just to adultery and murder. Um, and he'll, he'll lead into that idea of that I was conceived in sin. Is that David, even before he had committed adultery or murder,
1: he was already a sinner. Right. Before he had done anything, right. he was born a sinner. So it starts with coveting Bathsheba. He's, you know the story. Of David and Bathsheba and it's Uriah. springtime when kings are supposed to be going to war, but he's on his uh, roof. rooftop. He's, he's on his, on his roof. rooftop. Yeah. And he looks out over his kingdom, and there's Bathsheba taking Baby. a bath in one of the lower rooftops. And so he gets. He's got a good view. He's got a pretty good view. And he says, hubba hubba, and he invites her over for a drink. Okay. And so then he gets her pregnant. And then he's... Then there's adultery, there's lying, and there's murder. You give a mouse a cookie. He's <laughs> going to want the whole thing. And she comes back. She says, I'm pregnant. He's like, okay, well, let's get your husband over here. And he can, he can be the father of this kid. And that doesn't work out because his, Uriah is such a good guy. And he says, I'm, while the other guys are dying, I'm not going to go and have yeah. you know, fun. And so ends up being murder. It just grows a little. By It goes, starts with something small. And grows into adultery, lying, murder, everything else. And I
0: think it's important to see Luther does not spend much time in his commentary recounting the story. No, he doesn't. Um, because he wants to make it clear that David's psalm is not unique and specific to his own sin. But he's writing the psalm not only to reflect on his own experience of uh, fear of God and trust and mercy... But he's writing it to be a teacher to others. Right. And so David's psalm is written in such a way that any hearer of the psalm can find their own
1: life in the psalm. We have a tendency when we, when we read or hear about the story of David and Bathsheba and Uriah to go to the end, to go to the murder, go to the adultery, go to, go to the big things that are going on. Both David and Luther draw us back. To that seed. That okay, be, that beginning point of desire. That beginning point of desire. And then David and Luther pull us back to before that, where David, David says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And Luther describes this one sin
0: after another as like uh, pulling a string where one sin leads to the next. Suddenly, everything gets unraveled. Right. So this correct understanding of sin that Luther is establishing uh, then allows him to look at how do you respond to sin? Once you understand what sin
1: is, how do you respond to it? So I'm going to have a Luther quote in here. And Luther says, that sin is rightly defined as all that is born of father and mother before a man is old enough to say, do, or think anything from such a root, nothing good before God can come forth. So there's that, that, that concept of original sin. And, and so Luther starts with that and David starts with that. And then all of this, the desire, the covetousness, all of it comes out of our sinful nature. And so there
0: is an idea of enumerating our sins to kind of look at what one has done and what one has failed to do and think that you can start to get control. That uh, you can, uh, if you just can name it, then you can get rid of it. Right. But instead of sin being something that you can name and then control, the more we examine our sin, the more... We feel out of control. And instead of feeling under control,
1: we feel and experience the intolerable burden of the wrath of God. Especially as we get this this better understanding of the core of sin. You can chase it and chase it and chase it, but you can't get rid of it. And this is what Luther is trying to get at. That we're a sinner through and through, just like David does in
0: this psalm. Sin, when taken seriously, leads to... To uh,
1: a despair and an acknowledgment that God, I need you. So once we have this correct understanding of sin, Luther turns his attention to a proper re- response of sin. And He says uh, we shouldn't, and uh, we shouldn't, as Luther says, call to mind what one has done and one has, what one has failed to do. Rather, we should feel and experience the intolerable, intolerable burden of the wrath of God. Now, Mike, that, that's a spot that I think modern Christianity
0: is afraid of. Oh, absolutely. To, to think about God being uh, filled with wrath. We,
1: before, we, before we started recording, we were, we were talking about how I went to a church um, for several years where the pastor got up every week. And creatively tried to say, Jesus loves you. And that was the entirety of the sermon. Without talking about the wrath of God N- at all. Never talking about wrath. Never talking about sin. Never talking about... It was just like... It's a dislocated love then. Why do I need
0: this love? What is this love helpful for? Right. What, what do I need to hear about it more? Instead, it just powers on the sugar when you didn't even realize how... Yeah.
1: It was. It was, you know, Jesus loves you. Oh, no, no, no. He really loves you. Oh, let me tell you. He loves you so much that he loves you. <laughs> I, was just like, I think of, that overemphasis
0: of love is coming into the context of a world where the wrath of God is so oversaturated that the preacher is assuming you already know the wrath of God. So let me now tell you about the love of God. But that's a misreading of our culture right now. I believe The wrath so. of God is completely absent. There, there's no accountability for sin. There's no description at all of what anybody does as wrong. And with the absence of acknowledgment of sin, love becomes uh, vacuous. It's it's, it's it's becomes empty, right? Yeah, right? it's it's so so, so th- Luther he breaks us down, and he says if you are totally broken by your understanding of sin, then you are even in a better spot to understand God.
1: Right, right. So Luther says, uh, you know, he gets into this sort of sidebar discussion, which is sort of interesting. He talk, He's looking about science and theology, right? Yeah. And this is sort of a period where science and theology are sisters. You know, um, and the, the, we have to sort of go. It's sort of hard for us to wrap our modern minds. We see up. them so much in a different sphere. Yeah. But in this period, you know, science and religion we like brothers and religion. And it comes out of
0: Thomas Aquinas because Thomas Aquinas had said that you can understand God by understanding the world. Right. And so science is meant to be a, 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 a place of study that ultimately will lead a person to God. Or you could study theology and be led to God.
1: But both studies get you to the same endpoint. It was the assumption at that Ex- moment. Exactly. And this is the whole concept of natural law and all of that, which, you know, it, it's it's sort of interesting. So Luther is talking about this, and he he says, um, Luther says, uh, because we want to treat sin rationally. And this is something we still want to do. We want to I mean, understand.
0: Why did you do this? Just let me understand. What was your thinking? What was your logic? Right. But, you know, when a five-year-old makes a big mess with flour in the living room you can't ask them why did you do that <laughs> well, people will I, think, I know i did <laughs> yes and, and so we think we can solve things by just taking it apart and investigating it uh i remember talking to a detective that was a member of a previous church that I was a pastor of, and i said so what's what's hard about being a detective he said uh the assumption that people have that we can figure everything out yeah
1: yeah that's and, and, and there has to be a humility. When you're dealing with sin, what, what science, science rightly should be very humble, right? When, when science is, is properly executed, it should be very humble. But there is, within science, there is this, this, this hope that you can figure it out. Within theology, we have to be even more humble, Because we have to understand we will never figure it out. Sin is one of those things.
0: Yeah, so he says, Luther says this, because we want to treat sin rationally like a science. And so he goes like this. Such things are for science to discuss, not for theology. So a lawyer speaks of man as an owner and master of property. A physician speaks of man as healthy or sick. But a theologian discusses man as a sinner. In theology, this is the essence of man. There's nothing to take apart It's just simply this. We are sinners
1: through and through. Just like David says in the psalm. Well, things will start picking up soon after this, but let's take a beer break. Yeah, so
0: we've got a beer today, fresh from northern Michigan. It's a Sheboygan Brewing Company blueberry cream ale. It's got a beautiful bottle. It's got this kind of gold design uh, with a sailboat going across the waters with the sun. Raw, shining. And then the description of the beer has got a blue background with uh, the creamy print. Uh, it describes 5.6 alcohol by volume, uh, 14 IBUs, so not bitter at all. A light-bodied ale brewed with lactose sugar and fermented over blueberries. Fresh fruit aroma bursts from this deliciously creamy brew. And it does burst open. When you open to this can immediately the room was filled with the smell of blueberries we were talking about that memory that i had of going blueberry hunting
1: with my grandmother yeah it was uh, it's actually sort of funny because we we opened this and I, I was thinking you know when when i bought this beer i was like blueberry cream ale yeah. that seems like three words that don't go well together. okay the blueberries and cream sound good but the ale with that <laughs> i don't know so so I was not, I didn't have high hopes. Then I went on the website, and uh, this is one of their flagship beers. This is actually this uh, Sheboygan Brewing Company. This is one of their best-selling beers. And, and so I, I had more hope that it was going to be actually drinkable. All right, and what do you think? Is it drinkable? It is. It is drinkable, but I, I would say I'd probably want just one. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, we, we split a beer. I'm glad it's, I'm stopping at a half. Because it reminds me of when I
0: bought uh, a Samuel Adams cherry beer mm. and I had like a six pack and then my wife was going grocery shopping and she came back with the 24 pack. And she says, <laughs> you liked it. I got you more. And I'm like yeah but six was good for a while
1: yeah that's that's what this is like it's it's this is a this is a very nice it's a nice sipping beer very very uh very it's it's thick I'm surprised yeah. it's got a, it does have kind of a, that creamy flavor it's got too. a cream it's a it's a cream ale and it certainly feels like a cream ale you smell the blueberries a strong blueberry f- smell and flavor um and it's real good until it's not yeah. You know, and I think that's that's a good
0: description. I I would not be like, say, on the pontoon bone in the water and just say, hey, give me another blueberry cream ale. I've had one. I want more. Yeah, well, I'd say this one's good.
1: Yeah, it, it, it is. It's, it's good until it's not. And that's 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 how. Uh, so I'm going to enjoy this. I will enjoy this. But. I'm glad we're we're ending here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked quite a bit about how Luther introduces sin as something that is through and through, just the reality of we are. and the
1: more you get into it, the more you understand that we need God. So once we're totally broken by our understanding of sin, we can finally better understand God. So it, it, Luther, I'm gonna have, I have a relatively long quote here from Luther. so let's let's take a crack at it. A man hears and learns what grace and justification are, what God's plan is for the man who has fallen into hell, namely that God has decided to restore man through Christ. Here the dejected mind cheers up, and on the basis of this teaching of grace, it joyfully declares, though I am a sinner in myself, I am not a sinner in Christ, who has been made righteous for us. I am righteous and justified through Christ, the righteous and the justifier, who is and is called the justifier because he belongs to sinners and was sent for sinners. So Christ
0: belongs to sinners and was sent for sinners. That means that the Christ that we know, the we love and care for, that loves and cares for us, should be delivered to sinners.
1: One of the things that, and I, I like this whole quote, because it really does, It's a, it's a nice... Summary: A nice expansion of Christ's words. I was sent for sinners. I, you know, the physician is not here for the healthy. The physician is here for the sick, and and it's it's one of those things that as we talked, so many modern Christians struggle with this, you know, with admitting their sinfulness or facing their sinfulness. But if you can't face your sinfulness, then Christ isn't sent for you. Yeah, you know, if you're not willing to embrace who you are, if you're going to pretend to be better than you are, I'm not a sinner. I'm a good person. If you pretend like Christ is unnecessary, then
0: right. why? What role does he have in your life? Right. He becomes maybe just a little add-on, a little nitro boost to get you the last 10 miles an hour to win the race or something. (laughs) But he's not the beginning point. And this is a spot where we talked about how almost every page, Luther has some criticism of the medieval Catholic Church. Uh, This is where he criticizes the Catholic Church because he makes it look like that he saw Christ when he was a,
1: a Catholic monk, Christ was only for those that were supremely good at being Christians. Right, right. And, and Luther comes in with the exact opposite. He says Christ is not here, going right back to the gospel. Christ is not here for those who are the supremely good Christians. The self-righteous. The, self, the, 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 the self-righteous. Christ is here for the sinners.
0: So after this introduction, what Luther now starts to do is he, he'll have a verse... He'll have a commentary in the verse. Sometimes he'll add some uniqueness that he's learned through his learning of Hebrew. He'll describe some disputes he might have with the grammar. And what he'll sometimes say is the translator. And when he's doing that, he's referring to the Vulgate, the Latin translation that Jerome had. And he'll say the translator has done. He doesn't say Jerome's name out loud. He just says the translator. And he's criticizing
1: the Latin scriptures of his time. So there's a lot of good stuff, and really, I, everybody who's listening, I, if you can get your hands on it, read it all. It's about 110 pages. So we're now going to go to the first verse. So
0: according to Luther, the first verse, Have mercy on me, O God, according to thy steadfast love, according to thy abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. captures almost everything we've just said. That this single line covers grace, it covers forgiveness, and it shows that God is going to be favorable to us all. He's going to forgive us our sin. He's going to blot out our mercy. It's
1: essentially David's thesis sentence. And then comes a the second verse. Wash me more abundantly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And that is goes beyond that. That's a, that's a plea, according to Luther, that's a plea to eliminate all sin, and all the remnants of sin, including original sin. And then David points out that this isn't going to be possible in life, what David
0: asks. And we should know that it's not possible, that uh, we are not going to be cleansed from all sin. Um, We can't get too comfortable in our lifetime. We are going to be struggling with sin. But we continue to to plead for that moment. And that's the the humility that Luther desires in his first thesis statement of the 95 Theses, that the life of a Christian is one of repentance. Right,
1: right. So going on down to, skipping down to verse 4, and this is one of the most difficult parts of the psalm where, where David says, Against thee only have I sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight, so that thou art justified in thy sentences and victorious in thy judgment. So,
0: One of the things that Luther here criticizes is the past tense or present tense. And his point is that it is um, a mistake to translate this verse from Hebrew as only past tense. as something I did before, but I don't do anymore. But rather, it's a past and an ongoing concern that against the only do I sin and against the only do I do what is evil in your sight, that you are still justified in your sentences and you would still be the victorious God in your judgment. By Luther kind of correcting in his mind the grammar from past tense to present tense, he's showing that this is the ongoing struggle a Christian needs to daily have to recognize that I need to fear God because I I do
1: deserve judgment. And then Luther then spends some time on the word only, against the only do I, and we're going to use the present tense, do I sin, against the only do I sin. And so Luther, he says, only and solely against thee do I sin. In thy sight, I am nothing but a sinner. Before thy judgment, I boast of no merit or righteousness, but I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I implore thy mercy. So this is going to start to look at the
0: cause of salvation. If there is anything in me that would cause God to save me, then I am something other than a sinner. Right. But I am only a sinner, meaning that the cause of salvation can never be found inside of me.
1: It always and only can be found in the heart of God. So this is where we're getting into only against thee do I sin because we're, he's, he's putting it in context of justification and salvation. That this whole, which is right. I mean, that's what the whole psalm is about. That ultimately, all sin is a sin against God, and not just.
0: Well, I did this against you, but not against God. Everything we do is against God. So
1: I, I tried to put this into my own words, and what I, I'm if, if I'm saying I wrote down <laughs> if I lived in true faith always and everywhere, I would not sin. But I do not live in faith. So my lack of faith in God is the source of all my sins, and even makes all that I do sinful, even in my good works. All my good works are with if they're done without
0: Christ and faith in Christ, they're 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 no good. At the end of his commentary in verse 4 and continuing into the next few verses, Luther will keep coming back to teaching that our righteousness is an alien righteousness. So now, this word alien, it, it sounds <laughs> Weird, because we in our science fiction time think i think at least of an alien as yeah from the, Mars. F- from the
1: movie yeah yeah aliens the big mouth <laughs>
0: but he uses the
1: word alien to describe something that is completely other than you right yeah yeah so it's 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 different it's uh it's more like saying that uh but you know uh, I'll say that my dog is alien to me. It's it's something outside of me. It's you know this is this is um, or I don't know how how to put this. This extra bad,
0: is the Latin phrase, and it just means outside of you. And so we use immigration as well. We'll have someone who's not from the United States in the United States, and they are an alien.
1: Alien righteousness is trying to get to the fact that we are again pointing back to this the fact that we are sinners through and through and our only righteousness is found in
0: Christ. So when we talk about faith, it's not faith in ourselves, but faith in Christ and his work. We will try to do good, we'll try to make amends for what we've done, but it's never going to be enough because our works are always if they're done without faith, done to try to save ourselves. So everything that we do must ultimately look to an alien righteousness, not something that's in us, but something that is given to us by God. Verse nine now.
1: I want to go. take one more thing on this this idea of of being contrite enough. I wanted the Stalpitz had this great quote that he told Luther. And Luther brings it up in this in this and he said uh Stalpitz was Luther's basically, I'll call him a mentor. Yeah. His mentor, his, the one who confessor. he would confess his sins to. Right. And and so Luther kept going back when he was a young young uh, uh, theologian. He would he was struggling with this, and and Staupitz says, "Son, what are you doing? Do you not know that the Lord Himself has commanded us to hope?" And so it, he Staupitz, I think, masterfully put that desire to do what is right and say, you know, you are being hopeless and always thinking that it's all riding on you. It's It's actually riding on Christ. And this
0: is uh, another spot in the commentary where Luther will write about the temptation that exists as you're looking at your own sins, is to forget to look at what now God is offering.
1: Right, right.
0: All right, so now verse 9. You ready for verse 9 now? Absolutely, yes. (laughs) All right, so verse 9 says, Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. According to Luther, verse 9 is going to be finishing up a main part of the psalm, which
1: is focusing on repentance, sin, grace, and justification. So looking back on the main part, Luther says David uses verse 9 to remind us that we will never be completely faithful. And so we always need to return to God and ask for forgiveness for our lack of faith. So the next section of the psalm is going to
0: focus on three gifts of God. And each of the next three verses are going to mention The work of the Holy Spirit. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. And verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation
1: and uphold me with a willing spirit. So the first gift, uh, which is creating a right spirit, is saying that God is continually active in us and creating and recreating faith, which Luther calls justification. So that... That
0: having faith and having that faith renewed and strengthened is a faith again, not in yourself, but a faith in the alien righteousness of God. So having that justification, having
1: that right spirit within you, which is the, the God's God's work within us, is the work of that right spirit, that justification. So, first
0: gift, justification, having a good spirit, the right spirit. Now, the second gift is God's sustaining of the Holy Spirit in us, and this is going to highlight. That faith that only comes from God, it's not from anything we do, that we're powerless with it,
1: is God working in us. So this is, that again, just to remind you, that's where cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So this is the sustaining work. So you had the creating work of the Holy Spirit, which is creating me a new clean heart. And then you have the sustaining work, which is cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So we're going to call this sanctification. Now, sanctification just means to be
0: made holy. I have the right spirit that trusts in God, and now I have that
1: spirit at work in my heart. So then the third one, which is restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. If I So he does also spend some time saying that it's this, this restore to me the joy of your salvation is to be joyful in our salvation. So it's the first one is you're justified, then you're sanctified, and then you're joyful in your salvation. And that's the, that's the gift of having a courageous mind to go out, uh, great, courageous and strong mind, so that we can confess our justification and sanctification to the entire world without any fear of danger. Yeah, so that personal joy then translates into
0: worship. And as he starts to focus on our works and what our worship looks like, David is becoming a teacher. And Luther will point out that David's plan for teaching is to help others as well see their own transgressions. And uh, as we consider our own transgressions, we will learn to rely on God just as David has.
1: So there's a lot here. Um, I'm going to quickly go over it. Uh, so David starts out with, it goes down to verse 16, um, and David is rebuking the supposedly holy people who are out making sacrifices, where he's, you know, and Luther spent some time on this. This is you know, David's attack on the whole sacrificial system, which is pretty bold uh, for that era.
0: Essentially, a sacrifice that's done to gain God's favor is not a true sacrifice. And that is not a sacrifice that God is interested in at all. And so this is the rebuke of works righteousness is anything you do to gain God's favor is contrary to God's design to give you a willing spirit.
1: Finishes it up with uh, on verse 17, his favorite verse, Luther's favorite verse, at least he says so. Uh, this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. He, he begins his commentary on this verse by saying these words should be written in gold. God cannot be grasped in his majesty and power. Uh, rather, God is the kind of God who does nothing for any other purpose than to regard and love the contrite, vexed, and troubled, and that he is a God of the humbled and the troubled. And this
0: description, this definition of God that is full of comfort, also to me reminds uh, me of how he introduced his psalm. Uh, We didn't talk about this at the beginning, but Luther points out that God is not an absolute God of just philosophical ideas. He's a God that's clothed in the word, right? And that the way that we get to know God is to see how his word clothes us. That just don't think of God as an idea, but think of him as someone who wants to clothe you, cover you, and warm you in his embrace because he knows that you
1: are naked. So the last section of the prayer is for the New Jerusalem, the Old Testament believers, and the modern church that will be protected from its enemies both within, like the heretics, or without, like those who seek to persecute the church. And that finishes up Luther's commentary on the Psalm 51.
0: So you can read about it in... Uh, volume twelve of Luther's works. Uh, I have it in my church library.
1: You can come to my office and borrow it sometime. <laughs> um, you can usually find these online too. I, I've done an awful lot. You know, just go do a search on Luther's commentary on Psalm fifty-one, and typically you'll find something that ha- you know you'll be able to find it there.
0: Or, or you can you know you can support the work of uh, CPH.
1: That's right. Buy it. That's right. That's right. Uh, That's even better. It's volume like 12
0: at cph.org is $34 right now. Not too bad. Not too bad. So uh, that was our source material for today. Uh, we will uh, have an opportunity at our next uh, recording of Grace on Tap to be looking at the Beatitudes. And to see how Luther describes the two kingdoms. And what does it mean uh, to be blessed in this world? And what does it mean to live in this world with knowing you're blessed but yet still...
1: You've got to care for other people. Well, I'm really looking forward to that one. So I want to say thanks to everybody. Uh, You can contact us at graceontap, all one word, dot podcast at gmail.com. Or catch us at graceontap, all one word again, dash podcast.com. We're also available on Facebook. And we appreciate any uh, any reviews uh, that you can put on uh, on iTunes, which helps us get the word out.
0: And our plan is to try to record at least an episode a month in this 2022-2023 season of life right here as we're exiting covid
1: we enjoy ourselves so even if you're not listening if nobody's listening we're still probably going to be putting stuff out there because it's fun
0: (laughs) i did look on uh google statistics there was 47 people that visited our website last month oh fantastic that's not even talking about downloads of episodes just going to the website itself yeah that's all right there we go now talking about could we finish this beer did we want another by the end of this episode neither of us Finished up <laughs> here. So take that for a review if you want.
1: Till next time. Till next time.